Our people Then you have you turn to next laws. Let's say of Yaradea. Yaradea is all the laws governing the very I guess the more minutia of daily life, such as kashras. All in Yaradea, tzedakah, avelus. Then you flip to the next book. It's Eben Ezer, which is family life, such as marriage, divorce, um, and marriage, divorce, marriage documents, etc. The last work is Choshen Mishpah, civil law. If my ox gores your ox, well, that's the Gemara's case, but if I bang into your car, what do I pay? If I break your window, what do I pay? If I damage you, what do I pay? So if you think about it, there seems to be a very strong overlap between what the secular courts are saying and what Bezdin is saying. And the question really is, what is the relationship? What is the connection? Is there something different about civil law? And I think you can even you can advance the question and say, isn't... 21st century American law, in a way, just a more sophisticated version of Hoshin Mishpat. After all, Hoshin Mishpat is Babylonian law, which in its time you can probably was progressive and advanced, but now we are 2,000 years later, we're not dealing with cows goring cows, we're dealing with everything from me damaging you to how to how does a corporation function within a society? What are the rights of a corporation? What is a can a corporation be sued? Can a corporation the corporation have liability? These are much more advanced concepts, not found in Bab- times of Babylonia. So why should we turn to Hoshin Mishpat to help us govern and decide these very thorny questions when you have American law? No, I think it's a, it's a very fair question. What exactly is Hoshin Mishpat? Again, is it just seemingly outdated, or is there something more to Hoshin Mishpat, more perhaps than even American law? or secular law can, can, can offer us, which is why we still turn to Choshen Mishpat. So, to begin, why are we bringing this up today? Our parish opens up with saying these are the laws. Now, which laws are in Parshas Mishpatim? It's all civil law. It's primarily civil, civil law. Primarily civil law. So it's interesting. It says Rashi. Jewish people last week, what happened to them? Harsinai. God says, you're my people. God say, they say, Nasa, I mean, Nasa should happen this week's parish, but they say, God says, basically, I'm giving you the Torah, and what are the laws of the Torah? What would you expect comes next after God speaks to the Jewish people and says, here are the laws? Shabbos, no? That's pretty important. Kashris? No, Elam Mishpatim? Let's start discussing what happens when I damage you. It's a little bit, you know, it seems a little bit of a, uh, like, a, I don't know, anticlimactic a little bit. Like, we're, it's, we're dealing, it sounds mundane almost. So Rashi's first says, Elu Mishpatim, Ma harishonim yisinai af elu misinai. Just as all the laws, let's say the Aseris Adibros, came from Harsinai, which makes sense, right? If I ask you where Shop is from, that's, that's very religious, so probably from Mount Sinai. So too, all the laws I'm going to teach you now, says God, as in the civil laws, the laws we need for a functioning society, those two came from Harsinai. Rashi pointed that out. And then Rashi said something interesting, which I'm going to ask a question about. If you recall last week, it's actually interesting. The whole parsha is all about Yisro, and then we go move Yisro coming to Moshe, giving his son-in-law advice. Nothing's changed, except the Moshe accepted it. Then Harsinai, the Torah, Sarasidibros. Instead of the Torah ending then, the Torah then tells us, starts commanding us about the Mizbeah, the altar. Right? Remember that at the end of the parsha tucked away, it's like all about the altar. So Rashi says, why is it that we end off last week's parsha talking about Harsinai? Excuse me, excuse me, talking about the altar, the Mizbeach, 
which is about the sacrifices taking place in the in the in the base Hamikdash, and immediately after that we start talking about mishpatim, civil law, dinim. Rashi says, "Lamen to tell you, shesteim Sanhedrin tossim Sanhedrin eitzel Hamikdash." To tell us something very important, that what does the judicial, the, the Supreme Court look like in Israel? What does the building look like? Not what it looks like here, you know, what, 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 I don't remember what the architecture is in America, but rather, it's in the Beis HaMikdash itself. In the Beis HaMikdash, the holiest place, where you, I think, is most synonymous with connection to God, most synonymous with all the laws that are, have no relevance to secular life, right? This is the holiest place. It's all about transcending the mundane in order to reach the transcendent. Mizbeach, sacrifices, Kodesh HaKadoshim, all that. Well, if the the architecture is the 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 layout, sorry, the, the blueprints are floor plan. Mizbeach over here. Walk to the side. There's a door. Open up inside. That is a Sanhedrin. That's where they're all sitting. Supreme Court sitting there. So much so, the Gemara tells us that if the Sanhedrin is not next to the Mizbeach, it's an it's an attenuated Sanhedrin. They lose a lot of their enforcement powers. When the Sanhedrin was exiled, which they were exiled at certain points in history, they no longer were able to uh, adjudicate capital cases. They lost a lot of their power. There's a connection between Mizbeach, the altar, and Sanhedrin, the torts, the almost, again, the mundane halakha. They didn't call it that. So question number one, what is that connection? <laughs> question number two, ready for this one? So the Parsik says, These are the laws I place before you. What does it mean I place before you? So God says to Moshe, Says as follows. I assume people here have once or twice been to a restaurant. Right? You go to a restaurant. You go to your favorite restaurant. The waitress or the waiter brings over a menu. When you look at the menu, you usually get a pretty good idea of what the restaurant offers. No? The steak, you know it's a steakhouse, but you look at it, okay, this is the steakhouse, it's more this style. You know, they call it a burger joint. When you look at it, they start seeing it's burgers and also sandwiches and schnitzel. You get a pretty good, right, from the menu. Or even if you don't go to the restaurant, you look online, they give you the menu, you can get a pretty good understanding of what the restaurant offers. When you go to a buffet, you know exactly what they offer. The difference between a buffet and a menu is a menu, you have an idea. A buffet, it's, you know right away. Says the Rashi, uses this example. Civil law has to be like a shulchan arach in front of you. Like a buffet in front of you. Where it's not just you learn the laws. Moshe, don't just learn these laws and teach them to the Jewish people so they kind of have a basic idea. But it should be like a buffet in front of them. They know it so well, they don't have to go to the bookshelf and pull off the, law, the shulchan arach. They know it. Which is interesting. Because again, I don't... All the laws, I tell you, the Chavetz Chaim, when he wrote the Mishnah Brura, so he writes in the introduction to Chela Gimel, that's the third book, which is all about the laws of Shabbos. The only way to properly keep Shabbos is if you're constantly reviewing the many intricate laws of Hilcha Shabbos, because there's so many. So you have to constantly review it. I understand why, therefore, when it comes to Shabbos, we should be constantly reviewing it and it should be ingrained in us so that we can keep Shabbos properly. When it comes to Kashas as well, I understand why you should know the laws pretty well. If I were to ask you, how well do I have to know civil law? Well, ask how many people here know civil law? If you ever have an issue, what do you do? You call up a lawyer and they tell you. It's, we know it exists. It's important to know it exists. We know the basics of, I can't damage someone else. But when it comes to the actual intricacies, we leave that for the lawyers. You would think as well when it comes to Chosh Mishpat. 
Leave that for the, the Dayanim, the lawyers. Why is it important that all of us know Shulchan Aruch, not just once or twice, but so well, like it's a buffet in front of us? No, no, we know Chosh Mishpat. No? Again, there's something unique about Chosh Mishpat that Rashi is telling us. A, the courts have to be in the proximity to the Mizbeach. B, we have to, everyone has an obligation to know civil law. Interesting, no? One more. This is interesting as well, and this is actually the source for our prohibition. Lifnehem. The, the Torah says, these are the laws teach before them. Lifnehem v'lo lifnei gayim. These laws are supposed to be brought in front of a Jewish court, and you're not allowed to go to a non-Jewish court. The idea, of, the, the idea again, that we have the Bezdin. And it, now, when you live in a society where people are Bezdin does not have binding authority, so... Sometimes the only recourse is to go to a secular court. But if both parties say we want to go to Bezdin, you have to go to Bezdin. And if both parties are religious Jews, that, that should be where they're going first. Now, as we learned this past week, for those here, sometimes the Bezdin will say, we, don't have, we can't help you with the matter. It's a criminal case, whatever it may be. But really first, now, and as Rabbi Reese talked, who is here for Rabbi Reese? You, you, or you listen to it. As Rabbi Reese taught us that some, you know, the, the Bezdin has a, has a great standing within the secular world, but you have to go to a Jewish court. And this is the interesting part. Judge Judy, right? Everyone's favorite judge, right? Let's say she says, you come to my court, and I will follow Shulchan Aruch to the letter of the law, to the T. I will, I will adjudicate this case according to Jewish law. Even then, you can't go to them. There's something about being a Jewish court that's t- that, that's, that are adjudicating Jewish law that a non-Jew can't offer. The question again is, what is that? So our three questions. Well, we have four questions. Four, question number one was the broadest question was, what is the idea of Hosh and Mishpat civil law? After all, we seemingly, um, secular law is much more advanced, if you will. It's dealing with much more complex cases, which didn't exist back in the day. Right? As I pointed out, as much as we all use the case of a, my ox goring your ox, really, it can be anything from the, a, what, what is a corporation? How does a corporation function in society? I'm getting by the, these are questions that American law is still trying to figure out itself, but okay. The, um, no, civil cases. Civil case. A civil case. Um, we are then asked, why does these, why is the court system, it's based out of the base Hamigdash, so much so that if it's not there, they actually lose part of their power and enforcement and, and, and coercive measures. Number three was, why do we need to know, why do we need to know Chosh Mishpat so well? We have to know it like it's a Shulchan Aruch, like a, a table in front of us. And lastly, if, the whole idea is because we want to adjudicate according to Jewish law, so why do we care if the, Jew, the, the, the judge is Jewish or not Jewish, so long as they can do it appropriately? Any thoughts? Well, first of all, I think the idea is that, you know, when you say secular and religious, and the idea is that both religions, everything is religious, it's not secular is over here and religious is over here. They're, you have to do everything in a religious sort of way, whether it's secular or not. And also, I mean, Allah is principle, the Constitution is principles. These are the principles. So, if you understand, then as situations arise, then you have to understand the principles to be able to apply. A hundred percent, a hundred percent, right. The question is, is that what if I can tell you? I'll, t- I'll give you an example. So I think I've told you this story before. One time when I was in YU, I saw a little poster that said, "Come meet the uh, head of the Supreme Court of Israel." That's interesting. I'm gonna go protest. No, this is before all that. Um, I told I you I this story. Well, I'm, I'm gonna repeat it because I'm the one speaking. And if you did hear it, I'll still repeat it. Okay. <laughs> As I said to him, I had a funny joke before. I repeat jokes. What, what, how does it go? They, they say the rabbi can repeat a joke once every five years, a good story once every year, 
a good Dvar Torah, one separate Dvar Torah. <laughs> the, um, so I, I see the sign, come meet the Supreme Court, head of the Supreme Court of Israel. I'm like, that sounds interesting. So ne- it was next day, I think it was 4.30, 5 o'clock, I go to Belfort, which is the, tall, the tallest building in apparently Manhattan, just because it's Washington Heights. They claim, again, just height-wise, it's the tallest building, it's the tallest building on Manhattan built on the heights. I go up there, and I walk into the room, and I realize I must have been really early. I must have read the sign wrong because no one was there. And then two professors came in, one student came in, and then the head of the Supreme Court comes in with his shirt open and mug and dove it out and chest hair everywhere. No, I don't remember how he looked like, but probably, I don't think he's wearing a tie and a suit. So, turns out, no one showed up to this. So, I would, basically, it was a conversation between two professors, myself, and this head of the Supreme Court. And then, the dinner was supposed to be just for faculty, and students were supposed to leave. They're like, we ordered a lot of dinner, and it's just all of us. So we end up having dinner together. It was great. Very interesting to learn all about, again, just the Israeli judicial system. But one of the things that came out was the way Israel wor- law works is it's basically common law. But they look elsewhere as well for precedent. So you're, you're, um, you'll they'll look to Indian law to get a precedent. They'll look to to look to uh, Turkish law. Well, there's also Ottoman laws built into it as well because the Ottomans were there. Look elsewhere for precedent as well. Whereas the American legal system is very much where America like America. We like America. We're the center of the universe. So we're very American centric. But one of the things he said is sometimes they'll look towards halacha to find out to find out what would halacha say in the matter. As again, part of compiling what's going to ultimately be the decision. Why am I saying all this? There was a reason for that. I don't remember. <laughs> I think I was answering your question. That you like your Supreme Court story. That I, thought you I like my Supreme Court story. No, the reason I, I was, the reason is because you can say halacha is important, and I'm not denying that. But why, why can't we conceivably say if this is not seem, this is more the secular part of halacha? Yeah, I understand. Torah says we should take care of each other, we shouldn't harm each other, and here's the here are the following ways we should how we can rectify when I harm you. But if there's a more sophisticated way, because the world has progressed, right? We, we don't believe the world is regressing. The world is progressing. There's a famous Maratz which we discussed. with Firas Chais, we discussed this last year, two years ago. He writes, we're never going to fault Moshe Rabbeinu, because he didn't invent the printing press. He was the smartest person. Why didn't he invent the printing press? If Shlomo Melch was the smartest person. Why didn't he invent the printing press? Because that's not, the world, that's not how the world operates. The world is progression. It's progress. We build on the progress of the previous generation. That's what we do. So you can say, that was great for Babylonia, second century. Now we've moved on. Not building on it. We're not, we're not faulting them. We're not saying there's anything wrong with that. But again, the world has come more, become more complex. That's the question I'm asking. Obviously, we're going to get back to that there are principles that we can still extrapolate. But we're, we're, we're going to get there. The question is why. Okay. So, as usual. Oh, we still have some time. So, I think the way to look at it is as follows. Every legal system, every culture, excuse me, has a legal system. Without a legal system, chaos would ensue. Everyone would do what they want, and people wouldn't, we wouldn't be able to survive. The strong would defeat the weak, and you wouldn't have a functioning society. Which is why that even those who are, believe in the, you know, a libertarian, minimalist government still believe you need to have a legal system. And everyone who believes you have to have a maximal government certainly believes in a legal system. You need a legal system because a legal system is effectively keeps people's worst impulses in check. That's what it's doing or keeps the lowest element of society, if you will, in check. That's the point of a legal system. Choshen Mishpah seemingly would, be, would do the same as well. So there is, I just want to be mindful of time. There are a few Mishnayos which seem to indicate this as well. First of all, there is the famous Mishnah in Perk that says, Ashlosha Dvarma Olam Kayam, the three things the world stand, oh, excuse me, Olam Omeid, 
Al Torah, Avoda Vikmil Chasadim. Three things the world stands on: Torah, Avoda, which is worship, worship, davening. Although some interpret it to be sacrifices, and Gmil Chasadim is uh, doing acts of kindness. The reason I say that, I think as I saw in the Pirkei Rebbe Lezer once. It's just an interesting point. Pirkei Rebbe Lezer says Torah is t- learn Torah, Avoda is a service and the sacrifice in the temple. Gmil Chasadim is davening. I believe that's what he said. It's very interesting to think about then what the purpose of da- of David and Chesed, what the overlap is there. Not for now. There is another Mishnah comes up later, which we should all know. This Mishnah: On three things the world stands. Although some say the Olam Kayam. Al Torah Three things the world stands, as in the world would be the society would not function without society would crumble without, and that is Al Hadin. On judgment, al emes, truth, bal shalom, and peace. Three things that you need without this society cannot function. Now, why is this mission so, so important? On din, emes, al shalom, emes. Where is, where is it found? On? No, in, in the sanctuary, on the, on the left stained glass windows. You go in there, you'll see. You go to the Shabbos, you'll see. For some reason, they have that mission eyes. Why? We'll have to ask someone who's been here a long time. Those are the three Mishnahs that, that, that three, that, that's the Mishnah that's there. Um, okay, so let's put that to the side for a minute. That you need to have an order, you need to have an order for society to function, you need to have these three things, which makes sense. You need to have din, which is judgment, you need to have people telling the truth, people didn't tell the truth, everyone liked each other, no one trusted each other. How much of society is built upon the fact that there's a basic trust between one, one another? Everything from like, you know, I'm not going to just punch you in the face. Why? You kind of, there's, there's a trust there. When that breaks down, people are scared to walk at night in the street. What does that do to society? If people are afraid someone's lying. What does it do to society? And obviously, Shalom is important. When it comes to secular law, however, there was a very famous jurist named Oliver Wendell Holmes. Who's heard of Oliver Wendell Holmes? Very interesting person. I have, I, there's a very long biography, which I, uh, I only got about 100 pages in. He was a Civil War hero. He was a jurist, sat in the Supreme Court. He wrote a book called The Common Law, which is one of the basic books. Uh, it's, very, it's one of the basic books used in, in, I guess, law school and legal system. Look how he describes law, secular law. He goes, the life of the law has not been logic, it has been experience. It's not logic necessarily, it's experience, meaning to say, the felt necessities of the time, the prevalent moral and political theories, intuitions, of public policy, a vote of, or unconscious, even the prejudice of a judge share with their fellow man have had a good deal more to do with the syllogism in determining the rules by which man should be governed, more than the syllogism in determining the rules by which man should be governed. I hung up with you the first time. That's to say, what, what is the impetus or the inspiration for law? It's not necessarily logic, it's more of the lived experience when the judge, when the Congress, whoever's writing law, goes through life and sees certain, there are certain holes in this. As we said, people are, have found loopholes, people are doing certain things. There's a new phenomenon arises, AI. How are we going to regulate that to ensure that it's not going to cause the weak people to be you know, pushed out, to have everyone has a fair share, etc.? That is usually what's driving the law. Now, oftentimes there's politics driving the law. That again, it's not necessarily logic as much as it's, it's just a people's experience or the experience of life. The law embodies the story of a nation's development through many centuries, which is also interesting that you, you can get a real clear sense of American history through looking at legal history of America. Because again, what's America dealing with 2024? What is, what's Congress debating? Not the political stuff necessarily, but more, I say more the fight, AI. Those sort of things, what it means to live in a global world, we're so interconnected. You go back earlier, and 
social media, again, all these sort of things you can get, you, um, it cannot be dealt with as it contains only axioms and corollaries of book of mathematics, right? What the, the key, what's cool about mathematics is there are certain eternal truths there that are unmoving, that you, you can sit there from day to tomorrow and say, you know, truth is relative, but not when, it, when you start doing math. One is one, even if you say one is two, or one is three. It's just that that's the reality. Law is not that way. In order to know what it is, we must know what it has been and what it tends to become. We must alternatively consult history and existing theories of, of legislation. Um, the substance of law at any given time pretty nearly corresponds so far as it goes with what is then understood to be convenient, but its form and machinery and the degree to which it is able to work out desired results depend very much upon its past. So again, what he's saying is secular law is very much, I think the best way to put it, is results-oriented. We need to create a functioning society. We, all of us can have a healthy debate about what creates the most functional society, but ultimately the law is going to hopefully reflect that. And again, the debates are never that that's necessarily illogical. I mean, some of the people say that, but that's not whether they mean from the perspective of logic. It's more of, I think that's just not the best way to deal with X, Y, or Z. Um, it's usually, you know, you have competing values. Again, it's not logic. I want to contrast this to probably one of the greatest formulations of what halacha is, written in Halachic Man by Rabbi Soloveitchik. Again, listen to the difference. It's almost as if he's responding to Oliver Wendell Holmes and saying halacha is the opposite. When Halachic Man approaches reality, when Halachic Man approaches reality, he comes with his Torah, given to him from Et Sinai, in hand. Meaning, he orients himself to the world by means of fixed statutes and firm principles. An entire corpus of precepts and law guides him along the path leading to existence. Halachic man, while furnished with rules, judgments, and fundamental principles, draws near to the world with an a priori relation, a priori meaning it happened beforehand. Yes. Sure. When halachic man, I'll start over, approaches reality, he comes with his Torah, given to him from Sinai in hand. He orients himself to the world by means of fixed statutes and firm principles. Meaning to say that halachic man is coming with these eight, what he calls a priori, meaning something from before, that's who he's looking at the world. He's going to give examples and it's going to become clearer, and of course I'll explain. Halachic man, while furnished with rules, judgments, and fundamental principles, draws near to the world with an a priori relation. Again, he's not looking at the world and trying to, from there, say, okay, what do I see? But rather, he knows certain things already. He knows the halachic principles, and then he looks at the world and says, how do these things conform to what I already know to be true that are unmoving? His approach begins with an idea, creation, and concludes with a real one. To whom may he be compared? So this is where you see it's almost like a polemic against Oliver Wendell Holmes. To a mathematician who fashions an ideal world and then uses it for the purposes of establishing the relationship between it and the real world as was explained above. Right? That's what a mathematician does. They have the theoretical math, math. They know that, and they look at the world and see how to apply it. And when you do that, you can do amazing things really amazing things, but you're only doing that because you have the person in the academy who told you the theories and theorems. The essence of halacha, which was received from God, consists in creating an ideal world and cognizing the relationship between the ideal world and our concrete environment with all its manifestations and underlying structure. There is no phenomenon, this comes to your point, Elliot, entity or object in this concrete world which the a priori halacha does not approach with the ideal standard. So here's going to give some examples to hopefully clarify it. 
When halachic man comes across a spring bubbling quietly, he already possesses a fixed a priori relationship with this real phenomenon, meaning the complex laws regarding the halachas of constructing a spring, a mikvah. Is this a fillet? Does it work for in the, uh, in the base of Migdash in order to purify someone who was tummy mace, impure from a dead body? They had to use water from a spring mixed with the red heifer, the ashes of the, of the paraduma. Well, does this work for that? Does it have the right quantities? When a halachic man approaches the real spring, he gazes at it and carefully examines its nature. He possesses an a priori... He repeats himself again. So what he's trying to say is as follows. For the, for the halachic man, there is the theoretical world of the, the mathematician, of knowing all the halacha, and then when he looks at the world, he says, how is this going to conform? Is this piece of table, can this be schach for a sukkah? Can it not be schach for a sukkah? Is it, can it become contaminated? Rather than looking at the world and saying, based off this, no, let's construct the halacha. You hear the difference? For Alv Gwendol Holmes, law is a re- reaction to our reality and trying to ensure we can create a more just society, if you will. For the halacha, it's the opposite. The principles are all there, and now how do we apply it to the real world? Now, the, entire, the entirety of halachic man is about this, and also, just, just I'll mention it, but it's not relevant to the shir. For Rabbi Salavichik, he believed true Jewish philosophy emerges from the halacha. Meaning to say... It's not that we're sitting around thinking, oh, what is Jewish philosophy? Rather, it's within the halacha, you can, you can find an approach to life. You can find an approach to whatever issue you may be thinking about. From within the laws of mourning comes a philosophy of mourning, or a philosophy of evil, or a philosophy of suffering. So just... Back in the United States government, right now, it's, you know, the, the Supreme Court has a constitution, and they always look to see what, what does it say in the constitution. I was saying, you see me when you're traveling up here, you know, debating you know, about these things. Right, but our, but at the end of the day, when you're dealing with a very extreme case of you know this particular case, most law they're not necessarily look. I mean, maybe I don't know. I don't think most law they're looking at the constitution and saying, does this work within the constitution? You're dealing with it could just laws about regulating AI. It could be laws about speed, you know, putting a speed bump or put a speed bump. That's not a constitutional issue. It's more of we need to people are speeding. How are we going to stop it? Let's create a speed limit. Let's create a speed limit. It's not that there is a fixed you know a fixed a priori relationship with. We shouldn't speed, and therefore now we're going to stop. You know, you hear the difference? It's, it's responding to it. People now have cars that are self-driving. We now have to figure out how are we going to, you know, ensure that, you know, whatever it may be. If it does damage, who's responsible? Is it the programmer? Is it the car company? Is it the person because they're in the car? Right? These are complex questions. I don't think they're constitutional questions. And then we're only thinking of it because we're responding to it. Whereas within the halacha, give me one second, to your point, um, the, the principles are there behind it. Now we're trying to apply it to the cards. Yeah. I'm just thinking the two the two logical methods of Holmes and Rabbi Salvatic. One is sort of the converse of the other, but they don't necessarily always get the same result. A hundred percent. Yeah. But I that's why I, I I wonder if Rabbi Salvatic knew this line from Oliver Wendell Holmes because it's just so interesting how Oliver Wendell Holmes goes. We are uh, civil a uh, civil law or secular law is not compared to math. Rather, we are the lived experience of the nation. Rasalichi's like, who, to whom may we be compared? To a mathematician who comes with his a priori, you know, uh, etc. Of course he did, I'm sure. 
I'm sure, I mean, it's very, it's, it's very. Okay. So, where does that leave us? So, civil law, it's interesting because, again, civil law seems to mimic secular law. But Rabbi Salvechik is telling us that civil law seems, has to come from these fixed principles as well. It can't just be a reaction. So, how do we configure all this? So I want to see one more source, and I'm going to bring it all together. This source is, is, comes from Rabbeinu Yonah. Rabbeinu Yonah, on the, that comment on the Mishnah in Pirkei Yavuz, it says, Al Shlosh, Dvarim, Olam, Kayam, three things the world stands on, Din, Shalom, and Emes. He says, Tam shall, um, Again, think, it, sound, that sound, it still sounds very pragmatic, right? Din, we should have laws, Shalom, peace, Emes, truth, still very pragmatic. He says, one who delves into this will realize this is one of the Iker Gadol B'Hidiyas Hashem. One of the foundational and fundamental ways of knowing God is through studying civil law. Choshen Mishpah. So it's still a little bit, I don't know, confusing. Even if you want to tell me it came from God, but this is the way I would think, I don't know, studying Shabbos or Taharos or sacrifices. And he says, as the Pasuk in Yermio says, Haskel v'yadoasi. You, sh- you want to come to know me, says God? Ki ani Hashem chesed, I'm God who does chesed, u mishpat, and does ju- ju- judgment. And, and, and charity in the land. So again, he seems to say, you want to come to know God? The best way to know God is to study Hoshin Mishpah, civil law. Again, that's still very surprising. There's been a lot of questions. But hopefully I, I'm percolating your minds now with some sort of answer. I, I lied to you. One last source, and this is, then we're going to go from there. This is the key. Omer Rabbi Yehuda. What if, if you want to be a chassid, how can you be a chassid? He's not talking about the chassidim. I we used to say, you know, a, po- a Polish chassidim. But he's not talking about the chassidim here. When the Talmud uses the word chassid, it means the word is like a, someone who's very punctilious in their observance. Of, of God, uh, in observance. Someone who's very, uh, right, very righteous person. You want to be a chassid? What do you have to do in order to be a chassid? Three things. Be careful when it comes to nizikin, which is damages. Rava Omer. Mili avos, be careful when it comes to avos, pirkei avos, as in have good midos. And lastly, v'amrilei, mili de brachos, be careful when it comes to brachos, making brachos. Rabbi Michael Rosenzweig points out, there's two confusing things about this. Number one is, I understand, you want to be a righteous person, so A, when it comes to brachos, what are you doing? You're constantly invoking God's name, talking about God. The whole, I think the whole phenomenon of brachos is, we are, we are meant to go through our day recognizing everything comes from God, whether it's the food we're eating or the thunder we hear. That our immediate reaction should be, that came from God. You know, I, that came from God. Avos makes sense. You know, someone with bad midos, who, uh, just because they know a lot of Torah, not a chassid. But what does it mean you should be careful about damaging people? And moreover, the language is not avoid damaging, but fulfill damaging. Fulfill avoiding damaging people. The kind to fulfill, we use that language when it comes to doing an action. You want to fulfill the mitzvah of tzitzis, the mitzvah of lulav. You want to fulfill the uh, mitzvah of making kiddush and Shabbos. What do you mean to fulfill the mitzvah of avoiding damaging someone else? No, you want to avoid damaging someone else. How do you fulfill? What does it mean to fulfill? What's going on here? And I think this is the linchpin. Cesare Rosenzweig as follows. Secular law, as we've been saying over and over again, is about creating a system to keep people's worst impulses at bay. Choshen Mishpah is about creating a more just society. Meaning to say that built into Choshen Mishpah is not just what happens when I damage you, but rather a priori, if you will, creating a philosophy and a society 
of people who get along harmoniously. Of people who are living, the word is lifnim mishur sadin, going beyond the letter of the law. Not beyond the letter of the law because they elect to, but because the built into the very nature of Hoshim Mishpat is the idea we're supposed to go beyond the letter of the law. I'll give you an example. We'll learn in a few weeks Parshas, uh, Parshas Balak. Balak, or Bilam, curse, when he's, before he curses the Jewish people, he says, Matovu Yaakov, how good are the tents of Jacob. Why did he say that? What was he looking at? So the, the Gemara describes he was looking at the he was looking at the tents of the camps of Israel, and he realized something unique. The way they architecturally configured the tents, no one's door was opposite their neighbor's door, and no one's window was opposite opposite their neighbor's window in order to pre- prevent people from invading someone else's privacy. That built into the design. This is not. There's no damage in happening here. This is Mikhail and Mildezak. We want to create a society. We're fulfilling Mildezak. But, but here's the here's the here's the here's the kicker. What is it to invade someone's privacy in halacha? Is not called invading privacy. It's called hezekriya, damaging through seeing. Damaging through seeing. That part of of Choshen Mishpat is this ambitious idea that we want to construct a society where even dam- when you look into someone else's house, that's considered damaging because it's not just about keeping our worst impulses at bay, but rather it's about creating the most harmonious, I almost I'll say covenantal society, covenantal society. Like like uh, like a covenant where we we're, we're built into we're built we're you know um, the difference between a covenant and a uh, contract a contract is basically it's what you know I what I'm getting out of this a covenant is what I'm giving to you out of this and what you're giving to me or as we'll see in a minute the difference between in in, in the secular state everyone has rights right I have the right to privacy I have the right to uh, whatever you want to you know, put your name there the right to freedom the right to Judaism does not does not have a, a concept of rights. It's not that a poor person has the right to a welfare. Rather, we believe in responsibilities. Ray Sachs talked about this often, that society has a responsibility to those who are down. That individuals have a responsibility to give charity, which is a way of flipping it. It's about responsibility rather than rights. It's not about rights, but rather it's who's responsible for, for everyone else. It's the idea, again, the difference between, this is a broader discussion, a covenant and a contract. The contract is about what am I getting out of this and protecting myself. I want to protect myself before I enter into this agreement, so here's how I'm going to protect myself. Protect myself. A covenant is what am I giving to you? I'm not trying to protect myself, but rather trying to create something more just. Covenant and a contract. It's now a relationship to man. Yeah, it, it manage, yeah correct. Nowadays, if uh, you have a right and, it's, and, and they go against you, they'll just make a new law. That could also be. <laughs> that could also be. But now I think to really start bringing it together now, so now we can go back to our opening questions. One is, why is it so important? Well, one is... Rashi told us, that just as Hoshimishba came from just as all Shabbos comes from Sinai, Hoshimishba comes from Sinai, because again, this is not just civil law trying to figure out what happens after the fact, but rather it's about before we even construct our city, how are we going to build our city? That it's a way that we can create a just society, a harmonious society, a society that's promoting this concept of a covenant. Also, he says, why does Sinhedrin have to be next to the Mizbeach? Because what's the Mizbeach all about? Our relationship with God. What's the Sanhedrin all about? Our relationship with one another. We're trying to say they're inextricably linked. We can't divorce them from each other. They're inextricably linked. Our relationship to God, our relationship to someone else. You want to be a chassid? You have to have brachos, but you also have to have nizikin. You have nizikin as well. Um, 
I also think this is I, I, I this this is a piece, there's two pieces I want to see this. One is a piece I, I saw from Rabbi Sachs recently. I'm rereading the book um, The Great Partnership. And in it, he talk he, he he tends to repeat himself a lot. Oh, you know, he, wrote, he wrote a book every year, basically. I think by the time he was forty, so that's why so many books. He often he, there were similar similar ideas he came back to a lot. One of them was the idea of responsibilities and rights versus rights. One was covenant versus contract. He spoke, he spoke about a civilization that loses the concept of God, which is interesting because he can, he he's making the argument you don't have to believe in God to believe, but you have to believe there's something beyond just a secular state. Because when that happens, he says five things happen, and I'm reading it. And he was just so on the mark. So I want to read the first one. I, I, I had printed it out here. I, happened to, I left the book at home, but I took a picture of this because I thought it was so good. I sent it to a friend. So he says as follows. And this is, again, trying to show you how, the, how, how, in, how linked civil law is to, to religious law, if you will, to God, to being so close to Mizbeah. Because what happens, he says, is when you lose, he says, he says, where, where's it going? He basically goes, when, when society loses the religion, he says, what happens is, he goes, civilization then ends, not with a bang, with a whimper. They die so slowly that very few notice they are dying. When religious faith goes, and again, it's interesting because he's writing to a secular audience. He's, not, he's making a case for religion, even though he's not making a case necessarily to people who are religious or believe in God. But the case he's trying to say is you have to have this higher power. When religious faith goes, five things happen, gradually and imperceptibly. First, there's a loss of belief in human dignity and the sanctity of life. We're a secular society, he says. Why do we need to have believe in something greater? You lose the belief in human dignity and, sanct- and, and sanctity of life. This is not immediately obvious because the new order announces itself as the enhanced enhancement of human dignity. It values autonomy, choice, and individual rights. It creates a culture of individualism. So at first, human dignity seems to do better in a secular culture than a religious one. But eventually, people discover that in the new social order, they are more vulnerable and alone. Marriages break up. Communities grow old and weak. People lack deep, stable structures of support. They become members of the lonely crowd or the electronic herd. They float on the tide of fashion. They dress in strangely, strangely uniform ways. They think in strangely uniform ways. It takes far more courage to defy the consensus than it used to when conscience was given give dignity by faith. Wherever you look, in the arts, in music, in poetry, in the way people spend their free time, life seems more superficial than it once did. It has become a play of surfaces. Ultimately, ultimately, life itself becomes disposable in the form of abortion and euthanasia. This is often the very first warning, which is fascinating. And he goes on, and he talks about next is the loss of the covenant. Instead, it becomes much more a contractual society, where people say, if I can get paid for doing something, so why would I do it for free? Or people say, if you don't have to do it, so why are you doing it? He talks about the, last, the loss of morality. When he, says, he says, when he says morality, it does not mean morals in the sense that we often think of morals, because you can, he, goes, he finds it very um, insulting to say you, someone can be, can't be moral or secular. Of course you can. He says morals in the words of like responsibility. Those sort of words start going out the window. Responsibility, courage, the, uh, giving, those start going out as well. He talks about the loss of marriage, of having, living in monogamous long-term relationships, which is also something, again, if you're reading the news, there's been a number of things recently that have, about open marriages. People who are living in, they have their partner they're with for life, but they live in an open marriage where they have multiple partners outside of their marriage. This is a, a phenomenon that's been going on, but for some reason, in the last few weeks, a couple of books have been written about it. It's been reported about a lot. The loss of forgetting that the civil law and the 
religious law are really very much intertwined. That the Mizbeach is next to the Sanhedrin. And the Reisach also, in his last book he wrote, the last book he wrote was called Morality, where he makes his case at length, and he writes that, he writes, we need to move our society from the I to the we. Because politics and government can only go so far. The role of politics, the role of government, is to allow us to coexist peacefully, but as individuals. To build a community, you need more than laws. You need morality. Or, the indiv- um, or this idea of lefnim mishurus hadin. Or as we've been saying, this idea of hoshim mishpa, where we're saying we're living in a covenant. We're living not just how am I protecting myself, we're living as a community. Uh, but the responsibilities I have to everyone else. That was a very good line. Government's role. I think a lot of times when people get frustrated with government is they're looking to government for the wrong thing. They're looking to government because they say, how can we not fix society? Government's role is not to fix society. Government's role is to allow us to live peacefully and coexist. Our role as a community, as whether it's a community because we're a kahila, because we're a shul, or a community because we're neighbors living together, is to create that just society that's covenantal. That's not government's role. That comes from us, where we move from the I to the we. And that's the role of Hoshim Mishpat. It's aspirational. It's aspirational because, as Rabbi, as Rabbi Rosenzweig says, I think I had a great quote from him. He writes, It elevates man's empathy and responsibility in line with the stature of one who embodies Tselem Elohim, this divine human dignity, who interacts not merely with neighbors or fellow humans, but with the notion of family members according to the rules of Yehavta Lerecha Kamocha, and that all Jews are responsible for one another. It is an educational challenge and a priority to establish that Choshen Mishpa, the civil law, is not mer- merely the most ideal, efficient system of civil law. It's not an efficient system, but it's also, it is efficient, but it's also the most idealistic and spiritual, ambitious expression of man's interaction with his fellow. Lest the universal and pragmatic motifs blind us to the greater spiritual goals and opportunities of Jewish civil law. That's what he writes. What are your thoughts on that? Interesting. So I want to conclude then with one last piece. This comes from the Jewish state. This is a new book that's put up by Jerome Peretz, who I've been quoting a lot lately, one of the heroes of our people. He's been a hero for many years, but we didn't hear about him, at least in America. He's the head of World Mizrahi, but he's also someone we spoke about. I met him on, September, on, on October 7th this year. Two of his sons went down to the border. One was abducted, and they haven't heard from since. The other one was shot. He's, he's survived. He got married. I met him. I met him. I met him actually twice when I was in Israel. He's really a hero of the Jewish people, standing there, becoming a spokesman, both for the state of Israel, for the for the families of hostages, and really standing strong and, you know, trying to lead the Jewish people and carry them as a leader of the Jewish people, while he's enduring his own terrible, terrible time. So he put this book out actually in I believe in May of last year. Um, and I assume they're going to redo it and he has new things to say. But he talks in this book, it's the vision for the unity in Israel and why the world needs it. I'm sorry, the Jewish state, the, from opposition to opportunity, he talks about anti-Semitism. Um, he's very influenced by Rabbi Sachs and Herb Cook. And then he talks about just a vision for Israel, how we can coexist, how we can get along. Again, he's writing this, I think May last year was the, the, really the heart of all the discord. But in it, he had this great, he had this great paragraph, which I, uh, I, uh, they didn't put a, I know a bookmark, I read it on the plane, so I, I did the little, it's called doggy tag, what do you call it? I did that. What did he say? Earmark, yeah. It works, okay. So, he says as follows. This is just, I think it will sum everything up, but also because I wanted to quote from this book. He talks again about the, uh, the Torah's focusing on responsibilities over rights, which is Ray Sachs' idea. Uh, he says as follows. 
There is an essential difference between human law and divinely mandated law. One of the greatest medieval commentators, Rav Nissim, known as Duran, explains that the primary focus of civil law is to create a functional, organized society. See, he knew what I said. Whereas the main focus of civil law, from a Torah's point of view, is a spiritual nature, to create a more godly society. Rav Shlomo Zalman uh, Pines, a student of Rav Cook, beautifully explains this further. And I, I actually brought it in Hebrew over here. I found it just now on the computer. He highlights how societies rooted only in human civil law can ultimately create an orderly society by preventing people from hurting one another and damage, damaging each other's property. However, the aim of Mishpat, Jewish law, though, is to transform human beings spiritually and morally, to help people be more selfless and less selfish, and to encourage them to act on animal, to not to act on animalistic instincts, but rather on moral conscience, to aim to do what is right rather than what is convenient, and to be driven by values and not by expedience. Meaning to say, you could be a horrible person but never go to jail because... You don't want to go to jail, so you don't do terrible things. The idea of Chosh Mishpat is not to prevent you from doing horrible things, but to make you a person who doesn't want to do horrible things. In short, a legal system rooted in human consensus alone is a collective effort to ensure the protection of individual rights, to guard against mutual harm. This is very noble, and the Western world has done much to advance the dignity of all human beings. The Torah requires more, however. The aim is no less than a heavenly society collectively committed to the ethic of personal responsibility. A life of personal and communal spiritual transformation in which individuals proactively partner with God in creating a better and more just society by seeing all human beings as created in his image. That quote, as we say, mic drop. What are your thoughts?